We're in the book of Judges. I'm sorry. I said we're going to get done by the book of Judges before 2002 ends. I was wrong. We have four more weeks, just to let you guys know. So uh, we're going to be in Samson for three weeks, and then we're going to close the book of Judges um, on the fourth week, and that will push us to start the book of Ruth um, in February, which would be be perfect. It's going to be great timing. We will then go from um, February to Easter. We'll go through the book of Ruth, and then after Easter... You can come to the vision meeting to find out where we're going to go from, from there for the rest of the year in 2000, um, in 20, in 23. But as we're going, uh, through the book, um, of Judges, we get to different stories that it's like, well, how does this apply to us? You know, what is going on in this book of Judges? It's 3,000 years ago and it's, it's a lot of war and it's a lot of different things that are taking place. Where's the application to us? And when you get to the story of Samson in particular, then it really moves into a different category. It's like Samson, you know, we know that he's a strong dude, you know, that if you know the story of Samson, he is a strong dude. Well, how does that apply to us? You know, he, he you know, knocked people in the head. You know, he was, it was um, uh, very, very powerful. He'd fight armies. Well, how does that apply to us? When you look at the Bible and you want the Bible to come alive, you need to understand the fact, and I say this numerous times, is the Bible is not about us. The Bible is not about them back in the book of Judges that we're even speaking on. It's not about them, even in the apostles. The Bible is about, is about God and how God works, how God functions, what God does with people. And if he's doing it with people then, put, put in the category in the book of Judges, put in the category, well, how is he working with me? That's why when you read the Bible, you get to know more about God. You get to understand his mind. You get to understand his character. You get to understand... His, his will. You get to understand his thoughts. You get to understand everything about God when you read the Bible, if you do it um, in, that, in that category. So what I want to do is I want to challenge you to read the story of Samson. I'm going to tell the whole story of Samson next week, um, but I'm just going to take the first chapter of his birth, or the first chapter where it just explains his birth. And then when we're looking at this sermon in particular, um, you want to ask the question, what's God doing? What, what's, what's taking place? Why is God doing it? If God is doing that 3,000 years ago, what is God doing to us today? That's the, the thought, the mindset that we want to look at as we're looking at this story. In fact, if you look at the notes, I even broke it up. Samson and then us is where we even broke up this sermon. But we're going to find out who God is in the result of, of this birth that took place in regards to Samson. So we'll read the passage, and then we'll work through the passage. Judges 13, 1 through 25 says this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man named Zorah, named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that he does not drink wine or any other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean, because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on, the, on his head, because the boy is going to be a Nazarite, set apart from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now Manoah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again and teach us how to bring up this boy who will be born. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in 
Behena, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtiel. So let's just look through this passage, looking at Samson and watch how God is working with him. Number one, God's response to Israel is unique with Samson. We see that in Judges 13.3. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now, if you look at the book of Judges, which we've been working through the book of Judges, this hasn't taken place yet. In fact, look in our notes. God sent Israel a deliverer, Othniel. He just sent a deliverer. There's no magnificent birth or anything that takes place. God sent a deliverer, Ehud. God sent a deliverer, Deborah and Barak. God sent a prophet, Gideon. You notice a switch that just took really, that just took place? Deliverer, deliverer, deliverer. And then when Gideon came, a prophet came. And then when Jephthah came, God sent them, God just literally said, I'm not going to rescue you. Let your own gods rescue. If you're going to worship them, let them rescue you. And then when Samson came, God sent a powerful son. So when we're looking at this, you know, what is taking place in the book of Judges from God's perspective, from his mind? Well, we can see, number one, that um, Israel's not really repentant. I mean, if you look at this, God just, I'll rescue you, I'll rescue you, I'll rescue you. But they're not listening. It's going over and over and over and over again. God rescues them, but they go back to it. God rescues them, so you go back to it. He just sent him to deliver, deliver, deliver. They go back to it. So God does a different method with Gideon. He says, I will send you a prophet, somebody that is a messenger that will speak to you and say this is what's going on to try to get your attention. He sends a prophet, but do they listen? No, they don't listen. They go back. And then you see Jephthah and God practically done. is like, you know, fine, take it. <laughs> you know, you let your own gods rescue you. But then you see a son, powerful son, God intervening again with an unrepented people. So what repent means, repentance is you turn your mind on who God is around here. You change your mind on who God is around here. That's what repentance means. So what Israel was doing, they would, they'd worship other idols. This is our God. This is what rules me. This is what I bow towards. This is what I worship. But when you repent, you're saying, God, you're my king of kings. You're my Lord of lords. You are what I desire. You are going to be the ruler of my life. You are the one that washed me clean. You are the one that saved me. So it took place in Acts. People repented. All of a sudden, their whole mind was changed. It's like, I have a new God. I have a new king. I have a new Lord. That's what repenting is. Well, they're saying, yeah, I'm sorry. They're not repenting. They're just saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Get me out of this one, God. God gets them out of it. But the heart is so hard that they're not repenting. But one thing about God is he doesn't let them go. He doesn't let them go. You can see with Jephthah, he says, I'm done with you guys. You just take it. But God says, no, I'm not going to let you go. And then what does he do? He sends a powerful son. Not before, so, so he wouldn't even let him go. You know, we look at the Old Testament and say, you know, there's no mercy in the Old Testament. There's no grace in the Old Testament. God is just an angry God full of wrath in the Old Testament. That is not the case. In fact, there is more grace. There's more patience. There's more love in the Old Testament. I'd say, I'd say the same amount of love in the Old Testament as there is in the New Testament. And if you think there's a lot of wrath in the Old Testament, that's actually not true. In fact, there is more wrath in the New Testament than there is in the Old Testament. We see what happens at the cross, a display of God's wrath. All wrath take place there. But all the way through the Bible, we see a consistency of grace, of mercy, of patience. And here we have judges and people don't even want to be saved and God still saves them. They don't even want to be saved and God still brings 
a deliverer. That's what's taking place in the book. He's not done with them. He's not done with them. Even though they might be done with God, God is not done with them. Number two, God's timing with Israel is unique with Samson. We see that in chapter one. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines. Again, he handed them over. But how long did he hand them over? For 40 years. 40 years. Let's look back to the book of Judges as we've been talking about the book of Judges. Israel was oppressed for eight years with Othniel um, before God delivered them. Israel was oppressed for 18 years before God delivered them with Ehud. Israel was oppressed for 20 years before Deborah and Barak came. Israel was oppressed for seven years before Gideon came. Israel was oppressed for 18 years before Jephthah came. Israel was oppressed for 40 years before Samson came. So look at these numbers. Samson is twice, they are oppressed twice as long before Samson came. Twice as long before Samson came. But what does that communicate to us? Ask the question, what was the severity of the oppression? What was the severity of the oppression? A lot of scholars will look at these oppressions on each of these. And what lines up is the severity of the oppression is the time that God rescued them. In other words, the most severe oppression that was taking place was when? Is with the Midianites, with Gideon. Remember, they were in the clefts of the rocks. They went to the caves. They couldn't even show their heads. They could barely survive, and they would have never lasted 10 years. What happened? God saved them in seven years because the oppression was horrible. But then the next person, when you see the oppression extremely difficult, was Othniel. Well, how long were they oppressed for? Difficult oppression. Oppressed for 80 years. And then we see the Moabites is for 18 years. And we see the Ammonites is 18 years with Ehud and, and Jephthah. So what we do is we see a, a calculated formula that, depending on the degree of oppression, is depending on the degree of God coming and literally rescuing them. For 40 years... For 40 years, they were oppressed by the Philistines. Let me ask a question. How bad was that oppression? What was going on in that oppression? What was the dynamics of that oppression? They give lots of details. In, um, they give lots of details with, with Gideon's when the oppression was taking place. But what's going on with oppression with Samson? Taxation, bondage, enslavement. But was there brutality? I mean, that would be a question. Is there brutality? Was there abuse on children and spouses? You know, we saw that oppression take place with Ehud. Um, was there sexual assaults? You know, was that oppression taking place? Just a question. I'm just asking that question before we move on. Number three, Samson was the savior no one asked for. Maybe this gives us an answer of what's going on with oppression that's taking place during these 40 years. Judges 13, 1 through 2 explains us this. Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, there's usually a statement that comes through after the oppression takes place. But there's not a statement here in regards to Samson. They're delivered to the Philistines for 40 years. And then a certain man named Zora, and then the story starts to go on. What did they miss in the Samson story, in the story of Samson, and they did all the other stories? This is what they missed. Israel cried for relief. In Othniel. Israel cried for relief in Ehud. Israel cried for relief in Deborah and Barak. Israel cried in relief for Gideon. Israel cried in relief, and those statements cried for relief in Jephthah. Israel didn't cry for relief. In fact, Israel didn't even want relief. This is what's going on with the Philistines. What is taking place? They are in bondage. 
They are in captivity. They're not crying for relief. And God is just being patient because he's not going after them very aggressively. He just says, okay, what I'll do is I'll have this uh, child, this uh, uh, lady give birth, and all of a sudden he's still got to grow up. There's a lot of time taking place. you got the 40 years. There's almost this relaxing that's taking place. What is going on with Israel would be a question. What is taking place with Israel? This is what's taking place with Israel and the Philistines' oppression. Was Israel like their captivity? Yeah, they were, they were in bondage, you know. But it, it's, it's okay, you know. Life is tough, but, you know, it, it's, it's okay. I mean, we do get some benefits underneath the oppression. And it's very comfortable in the process of this oppression. So don't ruffle any feathers. Everything is, is okay. You might be thinking, well, what do you mean? Um, worked in a prison for 10 years, a juvenile delinquent prison. And recidivism rate is, is 60%, meaning that if, if the kids get out, they will commit another crime and then they will come back. And uh, they did that through the process of, of 10 years. It's like, all right, see you guys in a couple of years after they got paroled and went out. You know, and, and then, of course, they, they get locked up again and again. So I asked them the question, and I got a specific answer. I said, you know, guys, you know, in here you have to raise your hand to go to the bathroom. In here you have to say, when I say eat, you guys get to eat. When I say shower, you guys get to shower. You know, in here there's, there's control. In here there's, there's walls. In here there's, there's, you're locked in. You know, outside there's, there's freedom. Outside there's, you get to do what you want. Outside you get to make a life for yourself. Outside you get to see the wilderness. Outside you get to see everything. Why do you keep coming back? He said, well, that's the reason why we keep coming back. I said, what? What reason? It's because of the walls. We keep coming back because of the, the schedule. We keep coming back because of the consistency. See, when I, I walk out into the world, what takes place is I don't know if I'm going to die tomorrow on this gang that I'm a part of because I can't survive without the gang. And then the gang requires things of me that sometimes I don't even want to do, but yet I have to do it because I'm in a gang. You think I get three meals out there when I live? No, I don't get three meals out there, but I come to prison, I get three meals here. Yeah, I get a schedule here. I get protection here. I get everything I need, attention here. I get life here. I don't really get life out there because the world's too big. A lot of people built comfort specifically around that prison. So, yeah, they're committing crimes again. Why? Because they just have to commit crimes? No, it's because they need a spot. They need a place. 60% end up coming back. Is this what Israel's doing? In a way. Israel's doing it. It's like, you know, life is bad. Yes, we're being used. Yes, you know, it's our God is actually being taken away. Yes, things aren't good. Yes, we're in captivity. But, you know, that's just, nobody's dying. You know, so let's just, let's just keep it, you know, at even quo. You look at the historians. Historians were, did an observation of the Philistines and, and they were not cruel. Philistines were not cruel to them during this time. They were cruel other times. They're not cruel during times, but they're doing something way more wicked. What they're doing is they're absorbing the Israelites. They were intermingling with God's people. And they're changing their mind. It was changing their culture. They're intermarrying with God's people. They're interpenetrating with God's people. They make financial agreements with God's people. And corruption started going from one side into the other side. And what's taken place through this assimilation is that give us a generation or give us two generations and the name of God all of a sudden is gone. Quietly. Slowly. It's gone. 
through what the Philistines were doing to Israel. The historians say this is an incredibly dangerous time for Israel. Because remember what takes place if God's people are gone? Then God's message is gone. And if God's message is gone, then what takes place? There's no salvation for the world. Extremely dangerous time for Israel. So guess who intervened? The one who always intervenes. God. God intervenes. And how does he intervene? He gives one big bad dude to start a fight. To literally pick a fight. To turn Israel against the Philistines. To bring a separation and break and shatter the intermingling that has taken place. Because Israel's happy with all this stuff's taking place. God says, I'm going to send one man that will mess everything up for you guys. So your eyes will be open to the truth and you'll be able to see your king of kings and your lords of lords. So what did he do? Called Samson. Why? He doesn't want it to be absorbed. He doesn't want Israel to be intermingling. He doesn't want Israel to be intermarrying. He doesn't want Israel to be interpenetrating. He doesn't want Israel to be financially and economically connected because the culture is all of a sudden going into decay and the name of God is going into decay. Number four, Samson was a one-man show. We see that in verse 25. Set apart to God from birth, he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. One man show. Well, how does a one man show usually work? Well, a one man show works. We can say, well, there's you know always a one man show. Often it was a one man show. Was he a one man show? He showed up to Israel and says, "We got to be delivered." And then after he he said, "We need to be delivered." What took place? An entire army rose with Othniel. We see that in our notes. Ehud, what took place when God wanted to deliver Israel? Yes, he picked one man, but when the one man says, "Hey, we're going to find deliverance," what took place? Another army rose. The armies were outnumbered, but it was still an army. And then it even says 10,000 rose when Deborah and Barak says, okay, we got to be delivered. 10,000 people rose with Deborah and Barak to be deliverant, to bring this deliverance. And then when it comes to Gideon, 25,000 people rose. Remember the story of Gideon? 25,000 people rose. And of course, God filtered that army by saying, if you're afraid, tell them to go home. And then God brought them down to the creek and the cloth of the hands and, you know, picked, you know, filtered them to 300. The 300 conquered them, but everybody arose when it was time to be delivered. When Jephthah arose, what happened? There was an army that was behind Jephthah. But when Samson arose, guess what took place? Nobody arose with him. Nobody arose with him. He was just there. But he was one powerful dude that was just there. In fact, he was his own specific army. That God empowered him to get the job done that God wanted to get the job done. How powerful was he? I mean, if you want to go visit Samson, you would camp the night before. <laughs> and, and, I mean, camp and spread out. And, and we saw that Israel went to visit Samson. And it's like, okay, we got to go talk to Samson. We need 3,000 men. <laughs> you know, that just shows how, how powerful it is. Okay, the Philistines want to talk to Samson. Okay, well, we need thousands of men to talk with him. I mean, this guy was powerful because God was going to do something through Samson. Number five, Samson had brute strength. How strong? Samson tore a lion apart with his bare hands. He's going to meet his lover, Timnah. And then all of a sudden, Philistines cheated Samson. And in verse, uh, I think that's uh, chapter 15, Philistines cheated Samson and 
He caught 300 foxes, so he wasn't only strong, he was fast. Caught 300 foxes, he tied the tails together, he put a torch in them, and he set the foxes loose, and the foxes ran through the the, uh, the fields of grain and the fields of the vineyards, and as that was taking place, everything burned, and all of a sudden the Philistines said, well, who did this? And they found out that Samson did it, so they went and they killed his wife, and they killed his father-in-law, and that really ticked Samson off, so what does he do? He just, revenge, 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 he kills a whole bunch of them. After he kills a whole bunch of them, he ends up going to a cave because he's mad, he's angry, and, and everybody's like, we gotta deal with this guy, we gotta, we gotta do something with this guy, this guy's starting a fight in, in our entire land, and there's, there's no peace, something's gotta happen. So what takes place is Israel ends up, after the Philistines talk to Israel and work on him, Israel ends up to go against Samson. But not really necessarily against them. They just try to have to figure out what to do with them because nobody really wants them there. So they, they show up and they, you say, the Philistines are really, really, really angry at you. And there's a problem. What are we going to do with this problem? And, and guess who solves the problem? Samson solves the problem. How does he solve the problem? He says, what I want you to do is I want you to tie me up. And as you tie me up, I want 3,000 of you guys to escort me to the Philistines. And so 3,000 of them escort him to the Philistines. But don't worry, he's all tied up, meaning that the 3,000 will not attack the Philistines um, because he's got rope on him and he's in bondage. And, and, and then the Philistines are, I don't know how many there are. I know the 1,000 died. But you're probably in the thousands of the Philistines standing on one side that are desperate to kill Samson, who's in the rope. Thousands of them stand on one side, desperate to kill that person, Samson, that is in the room. But what's behind him? 3,000 Israelites that are hoping <laughs> that the Philistines kill Samson. 3,000 Israelites going, okay, I hope that these Philistines kill him. Nobody wanted him there. <laughs> Nobody wanted him there. Except one person. Who was that? It was God wanted him there because God wanted the intermingling to stop. So as they presented him there between the thousands and the three thousand where they want to just get rid of him and they wanted to kill him, what takes place, we know the story and we'll tell the story at length next week, is that Samson saw a donkey jawbone, broke the rope, he took the donkey jawbone and he killed a thousand Philistines. Think about Israel. They're looking at him going, oh my goodness, we cannot get rid of this guy. And the Philistines are, oh my goodness, we cannot kill this guy. Why? God was on his side. And God was accomplishing the mission that God wanted to accomplish. And even at the end of that fight, Samson ended up crying out to God, saying, thank you, God, for the power, but give me a drink. And then God sends a spring to take care of Samson, who is there. He's doing the work of God. He's doing the work of God. I know many of you are knowing the story. It's like, no, he's a messed up man. Don't worry, we'll get to that. We'll be talking about this. But God is not. God is in it. God's in the center of all that's taking place, and the work is getting done. This is how God worked. He wanted to accomplish a mission. He wanted to get the Israelites and the Philistines separated. He chose one man to do it. 3,000 years ago, this story took place. What does it have to do with us? <laughs> what does it have to do with us? I mean, we don't see any more Samsons that are taking that are around here. What's, what, what does this have to do with us? Let's look at it and see what it has to do with us. Number six, like Samson, God calls all of us to be on a mission to bring salvation to the world. God called Samson to bring salvation 
to the world. Because if Samson did not come, God's name and culture would have even disappeared. God called Samson, but now he calls on us. But what are other parallels that are taking place in this world? I'd say that we are very much like Israel. We're not being persecuted. You know, we're, we're more embracing our captivity. In fact, we live in a world that rejects God just like Israel. You know, we, we don't want God, and we really don't want anybody to tell us about God, and we want everybody to have their own feelings, their own mind, their own thoughts, and, and there's a whole bunch of gods that are out there, and don't say that there is one God, because that would be offensive to anybody who has another God. So let's just be really, really calm and really quiet. You know, let's just, let's just live in this, yeah, we're rejecting God, but it's really not that bad. We're very similar to back in that time, very similar in our world. We are people in our time that embrace bondage. We embrace bondage. We embrace the things that ruin us. We embrace the things that ruin our family. We embrace the things and get addicted to the things that are destroying our country. We are a people that says it's a free world and we're embracing things that consistently ruin us. And I know we're in bondage, but you know, it's a free country. And yeah, we're being ruled by our sin, being abused by our sin, but it's not that. It's not that bad. We live in a world where we intermingle with the thing that kills us, the sin that kills us. You know, we know that sin brings destruction. We know adultery brings destruction. We know pornography brings destruction. We know a list of all these things that bring destruction. We, we're aware of all of it, but you know, why not indulge? Why not, why not go after it? It's just like Israel. It's like, you know, just let's have some peace. You know, let's, let's not get confronted. You know, let's, let's not open up the Bible. You know, God's a, a God of love and let's just stay right there. Don't, don't let me open up the Bible and get confronted whatsoever. I want to live the life that I live, the way that I want to live, and I want to go to heaven when I die. So let me just accept God and, and just enjoy this life that has taken place here. We're very similar to Israel. We also embrace the enemy, Satan, just like Israel did. We don't really care if God's gone or not. Yeah, God's could get removed out of this world, but, you know, is that really our problem? Is that really our, our issue? See, what has taken place is... We are exactly like Israel during the time of the Philistine captivity. God wasn't done with them. And what he did is he took Samson, he knocked a whole bunch of heads together, killed a lot of people, went in to fight, and guess what? The salvation message lives as a result of that. But God works differently today. He works differently today. What happened to Judges 3,000 years ago was a, a, a sign of massive power, massive power in Samson, in one man. But how does he work today? Do we see massive power today? We actually see an increase of massive power today than even what was in Samson. We just see it in a different way. How do we see power today? This is how we see power today. We see Jesus leaving heaven, leaving heaven. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to come down to earth and I'm going to live a perfect life, a life that nobody can live. I <laughs> talk about power. I will control myself when I need to control myself. I will do what I need to do. I will give when I need to give. I will sacrifice when I need to sacrifice. Everything I do would absolutely be perfect for the person that's not perfect. And since I do it for the person that's not perfect, I will then go to the cross and I'll pay the price for that person. You talk about power. You talk about control. 
You talk about strength. There is more power than you can possibly ever imagine in Christ moving to that cross. Power over himself, power over the enemy, power over the world, power over the temptation. Went to the cross and died the most horrific death that we should have died, but he did it in our place. Power of love. And then he rose again for our sanctification. He's not done. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen. You will be saved. And what does that mean? It means that Christ in you. Christ in you. Remember way back when we were talking to the judges, we were talking about the Holy Spirit filled the judges and a lot of stuff took place. Every believer has the Holy Spirit filled inside of them to have power. Power to do what? Power to change your surroundings. Power to change you. Power to change the country. You see, what takes place is the major thing of death that is out there um, is sin. It will completely destroy you as an individual. It will completely destroy you as a family. It will completely destroy your country. And you're going to see in the story of Samson, this Samson didn't have power to overcome sin. But this power that's been given to us is a power to overcome Come sin, and the way that you overcome sin is you embrace the power, Christ, who died for your sin. That's the way you have power to overcome sin. The way you overcome sin is to embrace him rather than sin. Why is it so powerful? Because it doesn't communicate to the eyes. It doesn't communicate to the mind. It doesn't communicate to the situation. It actually communicates to the heart. And if it communicates to the heart, Guess what? Something's going to get done. <laughs> Something is going to get done. We see Samson, he, he has a massive arm, and he is fighting, and he is winning, and he is ruling, and he is doing everything he needs to God to do, but his heart was not communicated to, and therefore his ministry was done, but it did not live on. The ministry we have doesn't communicate to our hand. He doesn't work that way anymore. He doesn't communicate to the mind. He doesn't work that way He communicates to the heart. So when you see the gospel, what happens is it penetrates the heart, makes the heart, moves the heart, empowers the heart to something that is completely brand new that you've never even had before if you do not have Jesus Christ. Brand new. I have been born again. Well, how much power is that? We know how much power is that. We see it on the news. Look at the Russia-Ukraine war. Who's winning the war? What is taking place? Is Russia winning the war? They should win the war. Why? Because they have all the soldiers. They have all the material. They have their way outnumber the Ukrainians. The only thing they don't have is they don't have the heart. Their heart's not in it. But then you have the Ukrainians. What happens? Their heart is in it. When your heart is in it, I'll tell you, things happen. Things move. Things, things tear apart. Families are built. Children are raised. Countries are changed. When the heart is in it, what happens if you're going to have an impact of the heart? The gospel is the only thing that can change the heart and penetrate it in that way. They give so much power. Number seven, in the day and age we live in, God doesn't use brute strength to save his people, doesn't save a country, and doesn't save family. God uses brute sacrifice, brute service, brute love, brute forgiveness, brute grace, Brute care, brute joy, brute mercy, brute generosity, brute kindness, brute humility, and brute commitment. Do these with your strength and the power of the Spirit that is living inside of you, the world will change around you. The world will change around you. Your 
future will change for you. The history that you leave on earth will be built as a result of this strength that is here. We look all the way back to Judges 3,000 years ago, and what do we see? We see God intervening in people's lives to make a difference to the world. He did it through Samson. But what do we see today? He did it through Jesus, so he can do it through you. This is the direction that God wants us to go, to change our children, change our country, change our church, change everything about us. There is still brute strength that is out there. But the question is, is do you have it? Do you have it? We are going to do communion. As we're going to do communion, we're going to come up here and take the elements. The elements represent something. This is what the elements represent. Is the bread represents Jesus' broken body. Um, when you take the bread, Jesus says, this is my broken body. Why, why, why is he saying this? Your body should be broken, but it's not. My body is broken in your stead. As often as you remember, eat it, remember what I've done for you. It's a statement of power. A statement, as often as you eat it, and as often as you remember this body that was broken for you, remember me. That's all we need to do to have strength, is consistently remember him. That's what we're doing at the table. And also when we have the juice, this is my spilt blood. Your salvation is not free. I'm just going to tell you, it's, it's, it's not free. It doesn't cost you anything, but it costs Jesus' life. This is my spilt blood for you, for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. What's taking place up here when we take communion? God's trying to communicate to your heart <laughs> because he knows that's where all the power is. He's trying to communicate to your heart. Don't you see it? Don't you see it? This gospel? No, I, I see the world. I see everything else. I want to just mingle. I just want peace. No, no, don't you see this gospel that carries the power to make your heart strong to save the world? Let's pray. God, we just thank you so much, God, that you have not gotten rid of us. Look at the story in the book of Judges, and we think, why didn't you get rid of them? God, if you got rid of them, then we would have never had a chance. You chose not to get rid of them. You kept pursuing, even though they did not pursue you. And as a result, we have a chance, because Jesus came. And God, as we look at 2,000 years ago and what took place on the cross, I just pray that every person in this room would turn around and look back 2,000 years ago and see specifically what you have done for them. I just pray, God, that it would just not touch their mind as a history book. That it would just not just touch their, their behavior. I just pray that it would consume their heart. Nothing will get done until that heart is consumed. But God, as we look at your gospel, I just pray, God, that our hearts would be consumed with the amount of love that has been granted to us, the amount of sacrifice that has been granted to us. Then in turn, God, let the love and sacrifice come out of us. We live in a world that needs to be changed, and we know there's only one source, God, and it is a salvation message that you gave to the world. We just pray, God, that that salvation message is alive in us, so it will be alive into everybody that we are around. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.